like you, I have spent some time this week on social media observing the events in Minneapolis and now all over our country. Um, I shared or retweeted two responses that I felt like captured my sentiments the best from two men that I very much respect. Um, If you'd like to check those out, I shared Pastor Rick Warren's video um, early Saturday morning on my FaceTime timeline. You're welcome to go watch that. I also retweeted Tony Dungy's response on my Twitter feed. Hopefully you already follow me on both of those platforms. If you don't, go to Facebook, look up Jerry Walsh, and uh, friend me. I'll be friends with just about anybody. And um, <laughs> and then um, on Twitter, I'm Rev, R-E-V, Jerry Walsh, and uh, follow me there. Listen, <clears throat> a lot has been said, a lot. And this morning, I'd like to say what I'm going to say. I've been praying about what to say. And I felt like what God was leading me to do is I'd like to say what I'm going to say to the one person who can make the most change in these events. So if you'd like to, you can join with me as I pray my personal prayer to God. Heavenly Father, I pray for our nation. I pray for the anger and the hate and the violence I see all around me. Obviously, this breaks your heart. Help it to break my heart, too. I know racism is a sin you just can't stand. You have made every human being in your image. Every race and ethnicity is precious in your sight. And you see people as lost or found, saved or unsaved, your child or your creation. And you love everyone equally. You don't love me, God, because of the color of my skin. And you don't despise me because of the color of my heart either. Help me to love people like you. Help me to see people like you see them. Help me to love the saved and the unsaved, the lost and the found, your children and your creations. Father, this hate and anger and racism comes straight from Satan. And I acknowledge that he cheats. He wants to hurt you by hurting your children and your creation. Help me personally to love everyone. My church is full of people from many races and ethnicities. Some of them are scared and hurting after watching the events of this last week and earlier events. Help me to understand their fears as they see people who look like them or their loved ones hurt, maimed, or even killed. I don't know what that's like. Help me to understand them and their fears better. Help me to communicate to them that I stand with them, and even more importantly, that you, Father, stand with them. And help me to show my love for them, both privately and publicly. Father, our nation is so polarized right now. Help me to understand those who don't think the way I think, vote the way I vote, believe what I believe, or cherish what I cherish. Help me to understand them and to love them. I really can't do this without your help. You command me to love my neighbor as myself, my Republican neighbor and my Democrat neighbor, my white neighbor, my black neighbor, my brown neighbor, my Christian neighbor, my Hindu neighbor, my Muslim neighbor, and my Jewish neighbor. Lord, I can do a lot better at loving my neighbors. Father, I know you are in control, and I know you're working out your plan. Help me to trust in that, because I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm worn out from all of this. And that makes me a little short-tempered and grouchy. So please fill me with your spirit afresh and anew today. Today, as the world celebrates Pentecost, the day your spirit came to dwell in every believer, Father, I need more of your spirit in my life right now. I need your spirit to direct and lead me. 
I need your spirit to be able to love those around me and those I come in contact with. Help me to live my life in a way that people are drawn to your son by the spirit living within me. And Father, I pray for my nation. I pray for my neighborhood and I pray for my church. We all need more of you, more of Jesus, and more of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You know, every week I've been asking someone from our church congregation to read some scriptures. One of my favorite um, scripture readers is a guy from one of my small groups, um, Jim Spann. And I've asked him to slowly read through this passage that we're going to be studying today from Genesis. If you'll turn your attention. Good morning and welcome. I'm Jim Spann and I've been attending... Seminole Community Church for about the last nine years. Today, our scripture reading is going to come from the book of Genesis, chapters 39, verse 20, through chapter 41, verse 16. And we'll be reading from the New Living Translation. So Potiphar took Joseph and threw him into prison, where the king's prisoners were being held, and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison, and he showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite of the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him, and caused everything that he did to succeed. Now, sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and his chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials, and he put them in prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. And they remained in prison for quite some time. And the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. Now, while they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and the baker each had a dream one night. Each dream had a meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, We both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. In my dream, he said, I saw a grapevine in front of me. The vine had three branches that became bud and blossomed and soon produced clusters of ripe grapes. I was holding Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand, so I took a cluster of the grapes and I squeezed the juice into the cup, and then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is what the dream means, Joseph said. Three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as his chief cupbearer. And please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my own homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I am here in prison. And I did nothing to deserve it. Pharaoh's birthday came three days later, and he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff. He summoned his chief cupbearer and the chief baker to join the other officials, and then he restored the chief cupbearer to his favorite position so he could again hand Pharaoh the cup. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him a second thought. Well, two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. 
The next morning, Pharaoh was very disturbed by the dream, so he called for all the magicians and all the wise men of Egypt. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, and not one of them could tell him what they meant. Finally, the king's chief cupbearer spoke up. Today, I have been reminded of my failure, he told Pharaoh. Some time ago, when you were angry with the chief baker and me, and you imprisoned me in the palace of the captain of the guard, one night, the chief baker and I each had a dream, and each dream had its own meaning. There was a young Hebrew man with us in the prison who was a slave of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he told us what each of our dreams meant. And everything happened just as he had predicted. I was restored to my position as a cupbearer, and the chief baker was executed and impaled on a pole. Well, Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from the prison. Well, after he shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and he stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night, and no one here can tell me what it means. But I've heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. It is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. The word of the Lord. So we started this new series two weeks ago. Obviously, we are going through difficult times ourselves. We've never been through anything like this, and I've been reading you this sentence, which I want to convey as kind of the theme of the entire series. We'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. In the meantime, don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair either. With God's help, we will get through this. And as we've been in the series a couple of weeks now, as we come into this third week of we'll get through this, if you'll grab your your program and turn it inside out for the outline there. We've been learning lessons from the Old Testament Joseph. And you remember when we first met him a couple of weeks ago, he was in the bottom of a pit, actually a cistern, that his ten older brothers had thrown him into. And they had planned to kill him. They hated him so much because his dad pampered Joseph. All of his trouble started when he started sharing with his brothers the two dreams that he had experienced that pictured them, his brothers, bowing down before him. He should have kept his mouth shut, I'm sure. Before they could kill him, a foreign group of travelers, traders from Midian heading towards Egypt came by, and the long story short is they struck a deal to sell their brother into slavery for 20 silver coins. And Joseph went from the favorite son to a slave within just a couple of hours, and and his story keeps getting worse, worse, worse. He goes from abandonment to enslavement to entrapment to imprisonment. That's where we left off last week. But through all of this, Joseph never gives up. He doesn't become bitter. He doesn't allow his anger to turn into hatred. He never hardens his heart. God had a destiny and a plan for Joseph, and Joseph believed God's plan for him. Last week, we saw Joseph in Potiphar's house. He sold into slavery to one of the Egyptian officials, actually the the captain of the guard or the security force for for Pharaoh. He doesn't know the language. He doesn't know the culture. He's, He's assigned some hard, grueling work. All of the odds are against him. And when Joseph arrives in Egypt, all he has is the clothes on his back and the call of God in his heart. But by the end of four verses, we see these words that he is running the house of Potiphar, his master, because God was with Joseph. And that is a theme throughout Joseph's life is God was with him. Joseph shoots up the career ladder in Potiphar's house. He's promoted because he made 
Potiphar so much money. Joseph seems to have the Midas touch. Everything that he's put in charge of, God blesses. And Joseph became a man with some clout. And on top of that, the women noticed him. The first lady of the household made a play for this Hebrew slave. He had plenty of opportunities to consider her proposition for illicit sex with him. He had plenty of reasons to accept it. Nobody would know. Besides, these were lonely days. He had been abandoned by his family. He had been sold twice into slavery. He's far away from home. He's far away from friends. Why not? And the stress of running Potiphar's household, managing all these slaves, managing all these gardens and livestock, all the peculiar protocols of the official events. Joseph's job was draining. He could have justified this choice. But instead, Joseph went on high alert. When Mrs. Potiphar dangled the bait, so to speak, he he didn't give this temptress any time, any any interest, any attention. He never flirted. He placed his loyalty above his lust. He was loyal to his master, and primarily he was loyal to the master. Joseph's primary concern was his preference for God. And that's the lesson that we learned last week that I want you to jot down. The key principle from last week's lesson is we've just got to do what pleases God. When you are faced with a temptation, when you're faced with a choice, when you're faced with a problem or a situation, you've got to ask yourself, what's going to please God the most? And then do that. So if Mrs. Potiphar couldn't flirt her way into Joseph's bed or him into her bed, she decided she would force him. So she physically grabbed him, and he wiggled his way out of his clothes, and she was left holding his coat, his clothes. And when he runs away in his skivvies or even less, she concocts this story. So then when her husband Potiphar comes home, she has her lie ready to go in his clothes in her hand for proof. And Potiphar charges Joseph with sexual assault and locks him in jail. That's where we left off last week, Genesis 39, 20 to 21. So he took Joseph and he threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. For the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. This wasn't a prison by modern standards. This was a collection of underground rooms with no windows, damp, stale food, bitter water. We would call this a dungeon. When they put him in this dungeon and slammed the door shut, Joseph probably leaned against the wall and collapsed to the floor. He said these words in verse 15 of chapter 40, I'm here in prison, but I did nothing to deserve it. Joseph had actually done his best in Potiphar's house. He made a fortune for his employer. He kept his chores done, his room tidy. He adapted to the new culture. He resisted the sexual advances. So how is he rewarded? Prison. Life sentence. No hope for parole. He takes the high road every time. Since when does taking the high road lead you over a cliff? Well, the answer is actually... Since Genesis chapter 3, all the way at the beginning. Ever since the events of Genesis 3, this is the chapter where evil is entered into the world. Is there any doubt there's still evil in the world today? Yeah, rhetorical question. Evil entered the world in Genesis 3, and it is still with us We can see it on any given night, just flip on the news. Disaster for this planet came when Lucifer, the fallen angel, was allowed to roam. And as the Bible puts it in 1 Peter 5.8, Satan, we call him, prowls around like a roaring lion. And as long as Satan is here, he will continue to wreak havoc among God's people. He will lock up preachers like Paul in prisons. He will exile pastors like John 
to remote islands. He will inflict the friends of Jesus like Lazarus with diseases. But Satan's strategies always backfire. The imprisoned Paul ends up writing the epistles, the Bible I keep talking about us reading. The banished John saw heaven and wrote the Revelation, as well as his first his letters, first, second, and third John. The cemetery of Lazarus ends up becoming a beautiful stage for which Christ to perform one of his greatest miracles. He brought Lazarus back from the dead right in front of the Pharisees. So here's the key principle we got from, from week one, and we'll see it all the way through. Intended evil becomes ultimate good. Intended evil becomes ultimate good. Because God is not sometimes sovereign. He's not occasionally victorious. God does not occupy his throne one day and then vacate it the next day. The season that we find ourselves in, the COVID season, the economic season, the health crisis or relationship crisis season we find ourselves in, well, it may puzzle us, but it doesn't bewilder God. I've been telling you this. God is not freaked out by COVID virus. He is not freaked out by your relationship conflicts. He is not freaked out by the economic downturn or unemployment or toilet paper lines, for that matter. He can and will use all of these things for his purpose. There's a couple of things I want us to learn from this part of Joseph's life, Joseph's life in prison. What can we learn while we're waiting? I hate to wait. I'll talk about that. But there's a lot, there's two things we can learn while we're waiting. Number one, the first thing I want you to jot down is God prepares me before he places me. Joseph is in prison and from an earthly viewpoint, an Egyptian jail looks like the end of his story. Satan could chalk this up as a victory for the dark side. All the plans of using Joseph in any significant way is slammed shut at the slamming of the, the door to the dungeon. The devil had Joseph right where he wanted him. But so did God. Right there in prison. Psalm 105, 18 and 19 says, They bruised Joseph's feet with fetters and placed his neck in an iron collar. Until the time came to fulfill his word, the Lord tested Joseph's character. Will you circle tested? What Satan intended for evil, what Satan intends for evil, God used for testing. God uses for testing. In the Bible it says that in a test is an external trial that purifies and prepares my heart. That's what a test is. Just as fire is used to refine precious metal, gold, silver, and, and it heats it up into a liquid so that all the, all the impurities rise, they call it dross, and you're able to to scrape that off and, and make it more and more pure, just like a fire is used to refine precious metal. Trials, tests, they purify our hearts in the same way. One psalmist wrote it this way in Psalm 66. You have tested us, O God. You have purified us like silver. You captured us in your net and you laid the burden of slavery on our backs. Then you put a leader over us. And when we went through the fire and flood, we went through fire and, and flood, but you brought us to a place of great abundance. Every day, God tests us. He tests us through people. You got some people that are testing you? Think of Facebook friends. You got a few Facebook friends that are testing you? Yeah. He tests us through people, through pain, and through problems. Listen, if you don't have any people pain or problems testing you it might be because you're the people pain or problem in someone else's life 
and they're being tested. You're like, I don't have any people paying the problem. Yeah, you are the people, the pain and the problem for some of us, apparently. Just stop and consider your own circumstances. Can you identify the test that you're going through or the tests that you're going through today? Quarantine, that might be your test. Homeschooling your kids, yeah, that's on Zoom. That's definitely a test. Too much Zoom, Zoom, Zoom? Test. Having to wait in line just to get in the store? Sure, that can be a test. Annoying people on social media, or as I call it, anti-social media? Big test. If we see all of our troubles as nothing more than hassles and hurts, then we're tempted to grow bitter and angry. We get frustrated with the people, the pains, and the problems. We get angry. But if we see all of those troubles as tests that God's using for His glory in our maturity, then even the smallest incidences of frustration that we go through take on a new significance. <clears throat> Each day is kind of like a pop quiz. You wake up in the morning and like, okay, what's the test today? And then some seasons of life are more like a, a final exam. And maybe like Joseph, you've done your best. You, you did your very best. And what happened? What was your reward for reading your Bible, for doing the right thing, for making the right choice, for sacrificing? What's been your death? Maybe it's incarceration. Maybe it's quarantine. Maybe it's the unemployment line. And you're thinking, this isn't fair. Why, God, is this happening? And really what we should be asking is, what's the purpose of this? What's the purpose in my life of this? Because think about it. Why didn't God keep Joseph out of prison? Could God have kept Joseph out of prison? Absolutely. But he didn't. Why not? Well, some things to, think, to, to consider. Joseph, as a boy, was prone to softness. His father indulged him. He spoiled him. Ric Flair coat. You know, he thought he was better than everybody else. Why? Because his dad told him, you're better than everybody else. Bad parenting. And even in Potiphar's house, he was kind of the darling of the estate. He's like, hey, my Hebrew slave is making me all this money. He's got the minus touch. Everything he touches turns to gold. And he's even good looking on top of all of his smarts and all of his, you know, I think there's probably some pride that might have gotten in the way. If so, prison's going to purge him of all of that. And see, God knew the challenges that laid ahead. God's not just thinking of the next year or the next five years in Joseph's life. God knows there's a famine coming that's going to wipe out everybody. And he's using his time, Joseph's time in prison, to strengthen him. Genesis 39:22. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. And by the way, talk about crash course in leadership. So when Joseph's at Potiphar's house, all the slaves have to do what he says. They're slaves. He's like the head slave. He can boss them around. But when he's put in prison, they're not slaves. They don't have to listen. These are unruly prisoners. They're lifers. They don't have anything to lose or anything to gain. And Joseph could have, he could have sat in the corner, crossed his arms and thought, you know what, I've learned my lesson. I don't want to be in charge of nothing. I'm going to fly under the radar. I'm going to keep to myself. I'm going to, I don't want to stick my head up because somebody's going to pound it back down. But he didn't. And he didn't complain and he didn't criticize. He displays a willing spirit with the prisoners. And he's especially kind to these two that Jim mentioned, this butler and this baker, this cupbearer and this baker. Both of these are officers in Pharaoh's cabinet in his court, and they're placed in prison, and they come under Joseph's care. And one morning, he notices they've got a frown on their face. They've got some, some anguish. They're looking a little upset. And he could have dismissed their expressions. He could have been like, what's, what's their concern for me? I don't get paid to manage these people. I don't care what's going on with them. I, I've got a job to do. I've got to keep everything going. You know, this is, I'm not in a happiness business. This isn't a therapy session. 
But instead, he takes a, a look at them, and he's interested in them. He cares for them. In fact, the first recorded words of Joseph in the entire prison sentence are kind words in verse 7 of chapter 40. Why do you look so worried today? He asked them. So here's Joseph. He's abandoned by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He's unjustly accused and in prison. Yet he's still tender to these guys who have been placed in his care. What is God teaching him? Compassion. Don't you think compassion would be a suitable quality for the soon-to-be the director of the worldwide hunger relief program that only God knows is coming? You see, God wasn't finished with Joseph's life. Both the, the baker and the cupbearer or butler, they have these troubling dreams. The baker, I mean the cupbearer, he dreams that there's these grape-bearing branches. He squeezes the, the grapes into wine. He gives the, the cup to Pharaoh. The, the baker dreams he's got a basket on his head with, with all of these loaves of bread, and the birds come and eat the bread out of the baskets on the top of his head. And both of them come to Joseph, and they're like, what do these dreams mean? And this was a test. It's easy for us to read through this very interesting story and kind of get caught up into, oh yeah, this is what gets Joseph out of prison. But the truth is, this is the test. Would Joseph share the interpretation that God had revealed? You see, the last time Joseph talked about his dreams, things didn't go so well. He ended up in a pit. And here he is, hearing about somebody else's dreams. And by the way, only one of the revelations was good. Yeah, it's easy to give the good news to the guy who's going to live and be restored. But he has to say to the cupbearer, good news, three days you're going to be restored. Bad news, three days, baker, you're going to be dead. You're going to get your life back. You're going to get the noose. And the question is, would he, would he accurately convey God's word, especially if he was standing before Pharaoh, say, in a couple of years? This was a test, and Joseph passed the test. You'll be out three days. You'll be dead in three days. The dungeon looked like prison, smelled like prison, sounded like prison. But if you had asked an angel on that day, hey, where is Joseph? The answer wouldn't have been prison. You know what the angel would have said about Joseph? Joseph was in boot camp. Joseph was in boot camp. He's, he's in training. See, this chapter of our lives... It looks like quarantine. It smells like unemployment. It sounds like a hospital. But if you were to ask an angel today, where are those SCC people? They wouldn't say quarantine, hospital, unemployment. They say, oh no, she's in training. He's in God's classroom. See, God hasn't forgotten you. It's just the opposite. He has chosen you to train you and to put you through this. Why? In fact, the Hebrew word for testing means to keep a lookout, to, 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 to look and to choose. So forget this idea that God doesn't see your struggle. On the contrary, He's fully involved in your struggle. He's allowing this struggle. He sees the need of tomorrow, not next week or next month necessarily, but He sees what's coming years from now. And he is using these circumstances, the quarantine, the unemployment, the relational conflict, the, all of that. He's using them to test and to train us today. God is the potter, we are the clay. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. He's the teacher, we're the student. He's the gardener, we're the branches. And we must trust this training. We must trust our potter, trust our shepherd, trust our gardener, trust our teacher. We will get through this. This is part of God's plan. You know, if God can make a prince out of a prisoner, don't you think he can make something good out of the mess of your life and my life? Remember, all tests are temporary. They, they, you know, that's the thing about a test. 
That's one of the hard things about a test. It's like you only have a certain amount of time. It's not like you can take all day for the test. It's like, hey, turn in your papers, put your bing, 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 put your pencils down, test is over. There's a little pressure with getting the test done. 1 Peter 1.6 says, So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure trials or tests for a little while. Tests never last forever because life doesn't last forever here on this planet. Sometimes tests end on earth. All tests will end in heaven. In the meantime, we need to follow the example of, of Joseph and let God train us. God is watching the way we handle the little jobs that he gives us, whether we're faithful with a few matters. If we're faithful in the little things, he'll give us more to be over. Joseph succeeded in the kitchen of Potiphar and in the, in the dungeon before he succeeded in Pharaoh's court. He cared for the butler and the baker before he was allowed to care for the nations. The reward for good work is greater work. Do you aspire to do some great things? Well, then excel in the small things. Show up on time. Finish your work early. Don't complain. I'll say that one again. Don't complain. Let others grumble over in the corner of the prison cell or on the pages of Facebook and Twitter. Let them grumble, grumble, grumble. But not you. You know how God shapes his servants? Today's prisoner may be tomorrow's prime minister. Today's believer is going to be tomorrow's discipler or leader. When you're given a task, take it on. 2 Corinthians 1.4, and the message paraphrase puts it this way, God comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times so that we can be there for that person, just as God was there for us. I love that paraphrase. You didn't sign up for this. I didn't either. You didn't sign up for COVID. You didn't sign up for a crash course. Maybe in your world it's a crash course in single parenting. I know some people who are just starting that journey. You didn't sign up for caring for a disabled spouse. You certainly didn't sign up for homeschooling your kids, those of you who've never homeschooled. No, God has enrolled you in some courses that, you, frankly, you didn't sign up for. But he has taken the intended evil of disease and riots and even racism and he is working this in, reweaving them, like we talked about, into the curriculum of your life. Why? So you can teach other people what he has taught you. Your mess can become your message. When we say it around here, your, your mess can become your ministry. Rather than say, God, why, why? What we should be saying is, God, what? What do you want me to learn from this experience? And rather than asking God to change our circumstances, that's what we all pray, make it easier. We really should be praying, God, instead of changing my circumstances, use my circumstances to change me, to change us. Life is a required course. You might as well do your best to pass it. God's at work, just like we sang in the song. You never stop. You never stop working, even when... I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. God is working whether we see it or not. And every challenge, if you'll fill this in, can equip you for future opportunity. Every challenge can equip me for future, for future opportunity. Don't see this current struggle you're going through as an interruption to life. See it as preparation for life. No one said this road would be easy or painless, but God will use the mess for something good. Hebrews 12, 8, and 10, also in the message paraphrase, I love this one. It says, this trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training. The normal experience of children. God is doing his best for us, training us to live God's holy best. 
All right, let me give you the second thing that I want us to learn while we're waiting, how we can learn from Joseph's life. Number two, the second thing we can learn is that God, waiting for God, builds my character. It builds my character. Probably the thing that, that frustrates us the most is that God, as God is equipping us for the future, it seems to take forever, doesn't it? We have to wait on God. Have you ever been to a doctor's office in the waiting room? I hate the waiting room. I went to the dermatologist's office last week. This week I went to the dentist's office. It's the same thing everywhere. The reception, well, now they shoot you with a the thermometer thing, make sure you're, you're not hired. And um, then they take your name and your insurance card, and then they point you over to a seat. Now you've got to take a COVID quiz. You know, they want to ask you some questions. Do you have a fever? No, you just shot me with a thermometer. I don't have a fever. You know, have, have, have you had a cough? Well, yes, but allergies. Do you have any shortness of breath, any recent loss of taste or loss of smell? Have you been COVID tested? Have you been around anybody who's tested positive? I mean, it's a long litany of tests. All right, now you can go sit over there and wait. And you look around, and you see a mother holding a sleeping baby, and she's waiting. You see a guy, obviously, from work, and he's waiting. He's thumbing through Twitter on his phone, and see a lady over here, you know, finishing up tapping on her device for some Facebook reply. She's liking everything. But everybody's doing the same thing. They're all kind of looking at their watch or their device, and they're sighing. <sighs> like, how long are we going to have to wait? No, listen, this isn't the examination room. They're going to take you down the hall, put you in the examination room, and you're going to wait again. You know, this isn't the consultation room. where That's on the other side of this wall where they're going to finally bring you in, and, and you're going to wait. You're going to wait over there. This isn't the treatment room where they're going to take you down another hall and you have to wait over there. This is the waiting room that it unleashes all of the other places for us to, to wait. I don't like to wait. Time moves like a glacier in the waiting room. Tick, tick, tick. Seems like every tick of the clock is five minutes. And life is in slow-mo. We don't like to wait. We are a instant gratification generation, the giddy-up generation. We, we, we want to get in the fast lane. And then we want you to get out of the fast lane so we can go fast. You're only doing 83 in the fast lane. You know, move over. And if that doesn't work, we're weaving in and out. You know, we're, we're looking at the lines in the grocery store and we're trying to figure out which one's going to, how many things do they have, how many things do they have, how, this, how, how quick does that cashier look? And we get all ticked off if somebody has 11 items in the 10-item line. Right? Can't you count? You know, no. Just because it's two Gatorades, that's two. That's not one. Right? So we get all bent out of shape. We're like, come on, come on, come on. We're, we're, you know, waiting for a song to download. And, you know, our computer's too slow. And, you know, I got to wait 30 seconds for coffee to heat up. The last thing we want to wait on is God. I mean, come on, God. Can't at least you keep up, Right? Listen, take a moment, look around. Do you realize where we all sit? This whole planet is God's waiting room. Every year of your life, you're just waiting for eternity to begin. If anybody knew something about waiting, it was, it was Joseph. One of the problems with reading Joseph's story is, is the brevity of it. You can read the entire Genesis account in a little over an hour. So I'm glad Jim read our scripture in a slow, entertaining, methodical way because, because the temptation is, even if you read the whole account in an hour, it, it's easy to think, well, this all happened before breakfast one day. And we lose the amount of time. What we should do is we should sit down and read Genesis 37 and the bottom of a pit, the bottom of a cistern. And we should read it for hours to really get the picture. We should read chapter, the first verse of chapter 39 says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. We should read that verse over the course of several months because that's about how long it would have taken Joseph to walk 750 miles. That's like from here to Nashville. And then there's the day on the auction block. And then he spends about 10 years in Potiphar's house, supervising the servants and doing his master's bidding. And then, I mean, time moves slowly in a foreign land, but time 
Time stops when you're in prison. And Joseph had asked the butler, hey, put in a good word for me. Oh, yeah, no problem. Got you covered. I'll read it. It says, please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he may let me out of this place, for I was kidnapped in my homeland in the land of, my, of the Hebrews, and now I'm in prison, but I didn't do anything to deserve it. Oh, yeah, I'll mention you to Pharaoh. First chance I get, you'll be hearing from me. And Joseph hurries back to his cell, puts all his things in a, in, in a box. He sits down, he, he, he spreads everything out, gets everything off, makes his bunk. He's got his little white trusty suit, uh, jumpsuit on, and he's waiting. And waiting. Nothing happens all day, nothing happens the next day, nothing happens this week or this month. And all of a sudden, six months go by, and he realizes nobody's coming. And it says in verse 23, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. And then the next, the next chapter starts like this. And here's the problem. He never gave him another thought. And then the next word is like just a micro meter. I mean, it's just tiny. It's just not the space between those two verses. I couldn't hardly fit a dollar. You can't have an underline between those. And it says this in verse 1. Two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. Two, 24 months. 104 weeks. Plenty of time to grow bitter, to grow angry, to just shake your fist at God and say, forget it. Folks have given up on God for a lot less reasons than that. But not Joseph. One day he hears him coming in. Hey, get the Hebrew, get the Hebrew. The warden's there. He's all excited. He's like, you, you know, get up, get up, get up. We got to go, we got to go. Pharaoh wants to see you. They change his clothes. They, they scrub him clean. They give him a shave and a haircut. They whisk him in to the throne room, and for the first time, Pharaoh sees the eyes of Joseph, the man who's going to save the world. He doesn't even know it yet. And Joseph looks in Pharaoh's eyes, and they're all bleary-eyed because he didn't sleep good last night. And so it was that Pharaoh says to Joseph, they say, you can interpret dreams. My counselor have been no help. Can you help me? And in verse 16, he says, it is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied, but God can tell you what it means. And set your mind at ease. Joseph emerges from prison in a two-year wait, bragging on God. His faith, prison deepened his faith. It didn't destroy his faith. Now, we aren't in prison. But are you going to let your this COVID thing devastate your faith or deepen your faith? Are you going to let unemployment or relational strife or health issues devastate your faith or deepen your faith because here's what i want you to write down what's going on while you're waiting while we wait god works he never stops he never stops working don't take my word of the song's word for this jesus is the one who said it in john 5:17 my father is always working god never twists twiddles his thumbs. God never takes a vacation. Yes, he rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and he's never rested since. He's been at work. He's at work in your life, whether you like it or you don't like it, whether you cooperate or you don't cooperate. When Joseph is in prison, God's getting all the characters together. He's got the cupbearer. He's got the baker. He's got Pharaoh having dreams because God knows what's going to happen. Romans 8, 28 is a verse that you should have memorized by now. We read it so often. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You can be still because God is active. You can relax because God is at work. Waiting is a sustained effort to stay focused on God through prayer and belief. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still. In the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper. Has that ever been more? Wow. Don't worry. It's like he's writing it to us today. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. You see, waiting is easier said than done. It's easy for us to talk about that. Fill that in. It, waiting is easier said than done. That doesn't come easily for me. I've been in a hurry my whole life. 
Sabbath is hard for me. It's, Sabbath was made for people like me, frantic souls who need a weekly reminder. Sit down and relax. The world is not going to stop. God promises fresh strength if we wait on him. One of my favorite verses growing up in high school was Isaiah 40, 31. Those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God will give us strength if we wait on him. We'll get through this waiting room. This season that we're on, we'll get through it just fine. But you've got to pay attention. I think of it this way. Not only are we in God's waiting room, but for the first time ever, someone comes into the door, and it's the doctor, and he sits right down by us, and he says, you know what, Jerry, I'm going to wait with you. Now, your doctor, your dermatologist, your dentist will never do that. But your great physician will. And not only are you waiting on him, but he's willing to wait with you while you're waiting on him. Let's pray and ask him to focus on that. Heavenly Father, it seems like we are all in a holding pattern of waiting. We're waiting for curves to flatten and waiting for places to open up and we're waiting for the call to go back to work or we're waiting for school to finish and summer to start and we're waiting, we're waiting in line just to get into stores, Lord. We're all waiting for things to go back to normal whatever that is. Help us to realize that you are preparing us for our future during this time of waiting. Please help us understand that this external trial is designed to purify our hearts. Help us to see this COVID crisis as the boot camp that it really is. That you are using it in our lives to equip us for future opportunities. You're the only one who knows the future, Father. We acknowledge that. None of this has caught you by surprise. In fact, you've actually allowed these events to happen in our lives to build our faith and to lead us into the future. But, Father, we admit we don't like to wait. Help us to see that this whole planet is a waiting room. Life is waiting. That you are building our character not only for the next season or the next year or even the next decade, but you are building our character for the next life for eternity with you in heaven. That is so easy for us to forget. Please help us to have an eternal perspective. We realize that while we are waiting, you are working, and we trust you for that. We trust your timing for that. Please give us the strength that you promise as we learn to wait on you, and help us to remember that you are waiting with us at the same time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.